and a little bit scary because Lindsay is due literally like any minute. And so asking her to do this today and their, their son, Nicholas, there's all kinds of interesting overlaps here, but uh, was, was definitely a step of faith on our part. So we'll be praying for them as they look forward to uh, their next child. This morning, we're going to be preaching from the passage that Michael just read, Luke 1. And we're going to look at four things from this passage, and it's this. Mary's trouble, Mary's son, Mary's response, and Mary's gospel. Mary's trouble, son, response, and gospel. First, Mary's trouble. Becky and I have been watching the series Crown on Netflix, the Downton Abbey show left a, a Downton Abbey-sized hole in our heart, so we've been looking for some British-like you know, show to be watching, and we found on Netflix <clears throat> this new show called Crown, and it's the life story of Elizabeth, the current queen of England, and it begins when she's a young woman, and it follows her life, and I'm assuming it's going to track uh, far into her life, but it's, we're still in the early part. In the early episodes, Winston Churchill plays a prominent role in her story, And, you know, when you think about Winston Churchill, you've got this man in history who literally carried a country in his arms, so to speak, giving them faith and courage and hope in the midst of one of the darkest hour in all of Europe's history as literally one of the most evil empires in the world had invaded Paris and is literally at their doorstep. If you look on a map how close Paris is from London, it's astounding. It's a five-hour drive. Imagine one of the greatest evil empires out, you know, invading Albuquerque or Tucson and being right here and having a leader stand up and say, we will fight to the end and we'll never, ever, ever give up and have such faith and such courage and such hope for an entire nation, continent, and in a sense, even the world. And we look at people like Winston Churchill and we kind of impose upon them superhuman powers. Like, well, of course, Winston Churchill had hope and faith and courage because Why? He's Winston Churchill. That's what Winston Churchill does. He has faith and hope and courage in the midst. And we sort of think like he somehow knew what to do because God sort of gave him this foreknowledge or this understanding. And we we impose these ideas on people in history. Like, yeah, of course they did that. That's what they do. That's what they always do. But the reality is he had to do it at a time where he had no idea whether Europe would fail or not to Nazi Germany. He had no idea whether England would survive. He had no idea what would happen. And yet in the face of that, he had to live it out. He had to have the courage. He had to have that kind of leadership. Now we do that with historical figures that we know were real people. But we do this to an even greater degree with people from the Bible because they just seem so unreal to us. They seem like mythological creatures, you know? Mary seems more like mythology than a real person, but this morning I'm I'm pleading with you to think about the reality of her life, her real fears, her real uh, issues, her real hopes and dreams, and then how all of this affected her in her story. Mary had to live this story out in real time, in real life. She had to have courage, obedience, and faith. What was she like? We don't know a lot about her. What was her story We know she was young. Most historians say shockingly young, like probably a teenager. We know that she's engaged to Joseph. We know that she lives in Galilee. We're very certain she was not a wealthy person, was probably very, very average or below average in terms of the economics of the world. 
And yet the angel Gabriel comes to her, is sent by God to visit her, and then says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Out of all the people in the world, Mary, this person living just a very average life, God sends an angel to her, and it says she was greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And this word discern literally means to make an audit or an account. She's trying to work it out. What does this mean? She's trying to add it up. She's, this is like a puzzle to her, and she's trying to put the pieces together. And of course, she's troubled. Can you imagine? For two reasons. <laughs> One, an angel just showed up and spoke to her. Again, though, with Bible people, we assume that they're just walking around going, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm expecting an angel to come talk to me at any minute. Like, oh, hey, Gabriel, how you doing? You know, like, let's talk, and what's up, and what do you, you got a message for me. That's not true at all. She is not more superstitious than we. She's not more, you know, supernatural than we are. She's not expecting an angel of the Lord, let alone literally, you know, the general of all angels, Gabriel, to show up on her doorstep and begin to speak to her. We think of angels, and I've talked a lot about this in the past, as you know, being these cuddly, cute little creatures with wings. They're kind of chubby, and they, they kind of fly around. They might have a harp or a violin or something like that, but they're ter- terrifying creatures. Read Revelation. Gabriel is the toughest of the toughest. He is the, the general of this, of this warrior tribe of angels, and he shows up, and he has a message for her, and she's troubled. She's troubled by seeing an angel Can you imagine what she must have thought after this conversation? Did that really happen? Am I going crazy? Was that just a hallucination? But she's also troubled by his message. Extremely troubled by the news that he is bringing to her. I want you to think about this news. All of a sudden, she's got this very normal life. She probably has very modest goals for life. I'm going to marry Joseph, you know. We're going to have kids, Lord willing, We'll go to synagogue on Saturday. We'll, we'll, we'll just do our common labors. I'll make meals. I will raise these children. I'll live and I'll die to the glory of God. That, that's just what her life is about. And then all of a sudden, this incredibly troubling and interesting news shows up. And if you think about it, many great stories have the same type of surprising twist. Seemingly ordinary people discover that they aren't ordinary. That their calling is not ordinary at all. Frodo. You're not just a hobbit. You are the bearer of the ring of power, right? Luke, you're not just a whiny farm boy, and you are a whiny farm boy. (laughs) But you come from this lineage of Jedi warriors, right? I mean, awesome. Harry, you're not just a normal kid being abused by your horrible aunt and uncle. Like, you're a wizard, and a darn good one too, right? Or whatever Hagrid says. (laughs) been a while. Mary, of all women in the world, of all women that have ever come before you and all that have come after, you are most blessed. For whatever reason, God has chosen you, O favored one, to be the mother of the Son of God. What a blessing. What a blessing Mary has Your life, although seemingly so ordinary, is so extraordinary. You will be the mother to the Son of God. And this news is not only troubling to her because you're trying to add this up, you know, and figure it out. It's troubling because it's scandalous. 
What? I live in a world where virgins don't get pregnant. How am I going to explain this to my parents? Can you imagine? I mean, this is the kind of thing we don't think of of Mother Mary. How does she sit mom and dad down and say, I'm with child, and it's not Joseph's. And it's no other human beings either. It's God's child. If you're their, her parents, how are you going to receive that news? Like, I don't know, Mary, that's a hard one to believe. Joseph, I swear to you, I was not unfaithful. Yes, I'm pregnant. I've never been with a man, not you or anyone else. And yet, this is from the Holy Spirit. Trust me, trust me on this. How is she going to, she, you know, she doesn't know Joseph's reaction. She doesn't know that God is going to be faithful to send an angel to him as well. Thank goodness. It's troubling, troubling news. An engagement in this culture was a much bigger deal than it is in ours. Like we decide who will marry as individuals and we get engaged. And then if we decide we want out of that, it's embarrassing socially, right? I mean, if you have to break off an engagement, some people you know have had to do that or maybe you have, it's embarrassing. But the social pressure in this situation is much worse. There's literally a contract already written up and you have to issue a legal divorce to get out of this type of binding engagement relationship. And so this news is incredibly troubling to her. But what I want us to see this morning is this, how Mary's trouble brings her and the world face to face with the living God. Mary's trouble brings her, and think how beautifully this is true, face to face in the most intimate way with the living God. She is the mother of Jesus Christ. And of all the other people in the world, the most intimate relationship as mother to child, she gets to bear the Son of God. She, through her trouble, gets to come close to the Son of God in such a way that we can't even fathom. And through her trouble and through her trial and difficulty, we get to come face to face in such an intimate and tender way with the Son of God because of her faithfulness and God's grace to her. We have Emmanuel, God with us. And I want you to think about two, and obviously hers is a very specific situation, very unique, but to generalize for ourselves, how often the troubles of our life are the vehicles through which God does show up in a more intimate and tender way. Through the difficulty, through the trial, through the tribulations of life, this is often where God meets us in a personal and intimate way and that we discover God in a much more profound way. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, a great book, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Trouble. God comes to Mary in her trouble. Next is Mary's son. Mary's trouble and Mary's son in verses 31 through 35. We read so much about Jesus in this passage and gain so much good theology and understanding of Jesus here. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And then Gabriel goes on to say, you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. He will be given the throne of David. He's a king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He's a patriarch. He will be holy. He is the son of God. All these things Gabriel says. And what he's saying ultimately is this. Mary, 
you are literally giving birth to the person who is the culmination of all human history. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to this one, this Messiah, this son. Everything that is wrong with the world, everything. I want you to think about everything that's wrong in your life, everything that is wrong in the world, everything that is wrong in everything in individually, socially, structurally, system, systematically, everything that's wrong in the world, this is the solution to the problem, Gabriel's in essence saying. He is the king of kings. David was a decent king. There have been other good kings, but he is the one that will be the better king than any of them. Most of them were failures. He is the patriarch of patriarch, way beyond what you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were ever capable of being. He is the father of all these. Everything in the Old Testament is foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus because he is the savior, not only of our sins privately, but he is the one who will redeem and restore everything that is broken and fallen and troubled in the world. Everything. Mary, this is your son. He's holy. He's the Messiah. She knows her Bible, friends. She's faithful, and she's trying to add all of this up. She's trying to give an account to an audit. Can you imagine what's going on in her young mind? I'm pregnant. I'm a virgin. No one understands this. There's an angel standing in front of me, and he's telling me all of this theologically unbelievable content. He's the Messiah, my son. Then we see Mary's response in verses 34 through 38. And I love the reality of the Bible. I love how authentic it is. Her first response is not like, none of this makes sense, but I'm totally fine with it. Instead, she says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. That's a polite way of saying, this this doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? I'm trying to add all this up, but I live in a world where virgins don't have children. My parents aren't going to understand, and you're telling me all this intense stuff. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. Uh, He's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings. I don't understand. Now, what's interesting is she begins with humble doubt. It's not a closed-hearted doubt. It's not closed Close-hearted questioning. It's not saying there's no way this is true. It's saying, I'm trying to make sense of this, but there's a humility to it. And some of you come to the Christmas story yourself, and in essence, the Christmas story is the Christian gospel, that God is with us. And you come to the gospel, and it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. You've got all kinds of doubts and questions. And I want you to see that there's a sense in which that's godly, and that's okay. Mary had her doubts. Mary had her questions. But she had an openness and not a closed-heartedness to it. Can that be true of you as well in your questioning? I don't know. You're telling me he's 100% God, he's fully God, he's fully man. I, I can't add that up. We get that. That's a tough question. But can you have an openness in your heart to the reality of the gospel? Question, doubt, but don't close your heart. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called holy. And then Mary moves from questioning to this humble resolve to serve. And I love her response when she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She doesn't say, hey, I've added all this up. It's super easy. It makes all the sense. Instead, she says, it doesn't make sense but I will bow and I will be a servant. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it come to pass to me according 
to your word. Mary's faith is both human and beautiful. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Such trust, such faith, such obedience. Now, at Advent, what I would love for us to be challenged with is this. To increasingly set our hearts on living as Mary lived in this moment. For these four weeks, when you're faced with trouble, when you're faced with trial, when you're faced with frustration, stress, difficulty, rather than going to your, your first initial reaction, which I don't know what yours is, could be fear, anger, frustration, doubt, fury, whatever. What if instead our, our first and initial response, like Mary's, is not like, oh, all this makes sense, all of this is easy, but instead those to say, but behold, I am a servant of the Lord. In the face of, of good things, of course, but in the, in the face of trouble and difficulty, what if just for these four weeks, we, every time we're faced with some complex issue, difficult thing in your personal life, work, whatever, your first heart response to force yourself to say, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Listening to her son's words from Matthew 23, where Jesus says stuff like this all the time. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We, we look at Mary and we say, of course, Mary was a humble servant of the Lord. She's Mary. That's what Mary does. But friends, she's also set before us an example of what faithful Christian living is. To love Jesus, to walk in the gospel is to live in such a way where you say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. The great among you will be servants. Last of all, Jesus says, do you want to be great in God's kingdom? And I want to th think about for just a minute the blessings in life. So many of God's richest blessings, the, the greatest gifts in this life begin with a path of faithful obedience and service. The blessing of family and children, for example, begins and ends with a million acts of service. The blessing of having children and having a family, like, uh, you know, we're just celebrating this young family that's about to have another baby. They already have one, so they know what they're getting into. Like that first child, right? The first time you have a child, like if any of us actually knew what you'd go through, I'm not sure any of us would actually do that. I'm not just talking about what women go through in the physical act of childbirth, but the sacrifices that you make of, of, to this human being, right? You know that if you're a parent. And when you're a younger parent, you kind of assume like, hey, this, this, there's a season where this goes on. And then later, when, when they get out of the house, they finally get on a bus, right? And they go to school and like you get a few hours and it gets a little less and then they're gonna go to junior high and then they're gonna go to high school. And then Sunday, I mean, they're gonna graduate and leave the house. And then these acts of service are gonna go on and, and then we get to graduate from that. But it's not true. Talk to any parent, talk to any grandparent, no matter what the age. When you're a parent, it is a continual act of service. It's a continual act of self-giving and love. If you're a parent, that's just, that's the way it is, and it's the greatest blessing, is it not? Same in marriage. Same in just regular Christian marriage, or excuse me, in Christian community. The doorway to gospel community is humble service. 
for any of us to experience Christian community, and this is a vision for this church, right? And I'm not talking just right now about like Sunday morning, okay? And Sunday morning is a, is a wonderful thing, and I I'm gl- thank you for being here. Continue to be here. This is so important as we feast together in the Word of God and the Lord's Supper and being together. But for there to actually be Christian community beyond just a service where there's music and a, and a sermon and hanging out, that kind of thing, but like real service and, co- and community comes through countless acts of service where you say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. This is an authentic gospel community, this church, and it's because of countless people laying down their lives in small and mundane and unseen ways of making a meal for someone who's sick, writing an email of encouragement, following up one-on-one for coffee, loving one another, living in small groups together, encouraging one another, saying hard things to one another at times, like really living out the gospel requires a life of service. And what we see so tangibly and beautifully in Mary's heart is this, is she is living her life for the glory of God, primarily, and for other people as well, and putting herself third. This is so hard and so difficult. When I was uh, in college, I had the great blessing and benefit, and I've told, if you've been around, you've heard this story before, but of being a camp counselor at a camp called Summer's Best Two Weeks. And for me, it was like summer's best eight weeks because I was there all summer. We had these sections of camp like where people would come in, these camp kids would come in for two weeks at a time, and I got to be there the whole summer as a camp counselor. I was there for three whole summers. I met my wife there. It was incredible. And the motto of the camp was, I'm third. And the whole theory is this. God's first. We're created to live for him and for his glory. Others come second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And then I'm third. And to live this way at camp, it doesn't mean that you're thinking of yourself less, you know, you know, putting yourself down. It's thinking less, or it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's the way to put it. Quoting C.S. Lewis. It's not putting yourself down. It's not saying I'm horrible, but it's thinking of yourself, <laughs> forget it. It's, it's, it's putting others ahead of yourself, right? I never get that one right. <laughs> it's, it's loving one another, preferring one another. And I tell you, every year when I would go to this camp, we'd have this orientation where we'd say like, hey, all right, this is what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about living our lives for these kids in such a way that God comes first, others come second, and you're placing yourself third behind those needs. That means you're gonna stay up late, you're gonna eat last, you're gonna be the last in line, you're gonna serve, 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 and we're gonna demonstrate to these kids. Now, here's the problem with that. Everything in my heart and life says Scott should come first. Everything in my heart, the way I'm wired, and guess what, you too. I'm not the only selfish person here. Because we're born, the Bible says, with a sinful nature and a brokenness and a selfishness that says, I'm first. Everything in our heart uh, just we're wired to say literally, I'm first. I go to the front of the line. And when I wake up in the morning, basically, if I don't fight this with the gospel, everything in me wants to place myself on the throne, put me at the top, right? You too. And the gospel comes along, Jesus comes along and says, no, God comes first in your life. Live for his glory. Secondly, live for other people and be a servant. And then you come third. And there's glory in that. There's beauty in that. This is the truly blessed life. 
And it would take me most of the summer just to get my heart oriented towards this and living my life in such a way that it was more and more for other people. And just as the summer was ending, I would go back to Purdue, back to being a normal college student, and back to a fraternity house where all this was very, very complex and hard. This is the calling. I'm third. God's first, others second, and I'm third. Friends, if we want Christian community, it's built on a million acts of service and a million acts of loving God, preferring other people more than we prefer ourselves, loving one another. This is what a good church is built on. This is what a good family is built on. This is what life, the blessed life that we all long for is built on. And Mary sets the pace for us by not knowing everything, not having all the picture figured out, by just saying, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. And we should praise God for her faithfulness. God gave her grace and mercy, of course. She was a broken sinner like us. But thank God for her faithfulness and bearing the Son of God and being faithful in the way that she was. I want you to think about how hard this is going to be, too. For the next four weeks, I'm calling us to be thinking every time you face some difficulty, struggle, challenge, you're going to say, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Think about how hardwired we are internally, but also culturally, to make all of life all about us all the time. Think about how privatized our lives are. Think about how individually we live our little lives in our little supercomputer bubbles, right? And just think about, like, this is such a gift in many ways. If I want to know anything, instantly I can just search it right now and find it. If I need to know the weather or sports score or whatever, that's helpful at some level. But there's also, I want you to think of all the ways in which life is shaping us, but now technology as well and creating us in this privatized, individualistic life where we have to, if we're going to live our life for others and get out of our individualistic bubbles, we've got to think about all the ways that we're challenged against this. Technology is one of those. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Before we go to this, literally, like, and, and I am as guilty as my own sons, like before we go to this all the time, perhaps before we plus, you know, click, we ought to say, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Do I really need to do this right now? Could I be having a live conversation with the human beings that are existing right in front of my face? Or do I need to like touch base with somebody that lives in, you know, California or Africa or wherever I'm connecting? Like, you know, can I literally see another human being in front of me and, and communicate? It's not easy. Over Thanksgiving, we've been trying just to have moments of non-screen time, and we're all violating. It's just so hard to not just go to it, right? We are called, as Mary, to serve the Lord. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Finally, let's look at Mary's gospel. And it's not the gospel of Mary. It's the gospel of Jesus for Mary. Luke 1.30, Gabriel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, I want you to imagine you're a real person, a real human being in real time and space, and an angel of God shows up in your house and says, behold, you have found favor with God. I get, I literally get chill bumps thinking about it. Think of all the shame, all the sin, all the problems in your heart, all the selfishness you know is there, and then have the, the angel of the Lord come and say, you, O oh favored one, have favor with God. What an amazing set of gospel good news this is. You have favor with God. The Lord is with you, he says. Isn't that amazingly good news? 
What freedom that would be to hear from an angel of the Lord. You have favor with God. And I have the greatest job in the world (laughs) at times. And it's moments like these that are so wonderful to be a pastor and be able to tell you, friends, through Jesus Christ, you have favor with God. It comes through humility, faith, and repentance. You don't just have that by divine fiat of being a human being and just existing on planet Earth. And, but through faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance and humility, and looking to him as your Savior and Lord, as Mary did, you have favor with God. You can have favor with God if you don't yet. Through faith and, and humble reliance upon faith and trust in Jesus Christ, through her, her son, you can have favor with God. The Lord is with you and also with you, right? Through the gospel, the Lord is with us. Matthew 1, 23, we already read it. I'll read it again. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. God is with you. The Lord is with you. Through Jesus Christ, he is with us. He is fully God. He had the power to overcome sin. He had the power to overcome death. And he is fully man. He lived the life you and I should have lived. And he died the death you and I should have died. So that we can have favor with the Lord. So that I can stand here in confidence today and say through Jesus Christ, you can have favor with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.